Back into the Kintec studio. It's Dan Richo and Satyar Shah. Quinn Hughes versus Kale McCarr. It's coming tomorrow. We'll have it here on Sports at 650. Let's bring in our next guest. It is uh, Irfan Gafar, Canucks insider. What's happening, Irf? What's going on, fellas? How we doing? Uh, we're doing uh, we're doing pretty well. You know, just getting ready for uh, the Norris Trophy battle to happen tomorrow night. Quinn Hughes versus Kale McCarr. Like, Hughes is the favorite right now, which is uh, pretty wild. But McCarr is sneakily right there with Hughes in, uh, in points per game. Should be a pretty good battle tomorrow night. Yeah. I mean, McCarr, when McCarr won the Norris a couple of years ago, he was right up there as well. Yeah. Um, leading, obviously, in scoring. And I think, I mean, furthering that, I look, I, I know that the awards aren't only judged for the regular season, but what McCarr did against, Connor McDavid and Connor McDavid specifically in that Edmonton Oilers team was wild in the conference final that year. Yeah. Like, like he, he was on another planet and right now we're starting to see what Quinn Hughes is able to do um, in, in that type of level, not only on the offensive side, just putting racking up points, but his defensive capabilities and, and, and the way he leads his team. Yeah. And I just, uh, you know, the, the way him and Hronik have played together so far is uh, yeah. pretty wild. Hronik's going to get, uh, Quite the contract, as uh, Alan Walsh keeps uh, reminding everybody on uh, on Twitter about the conversation around Philip Ronick. But uh, that's uh, it's another story for another day because I think the Canucks probably still more uh, focused on getting number forty done to a new contract extension. You know, it's the ongoing conversation we've had all year long. We had some updates last week. Has there been any kind of movement on uh, Elias Pettersson since we last spoke? No, I don't think there's any updates. I think the two sides are are pretty much continuing to chat, um, whether that's term or or, or what or or um, obviously uh, AAV and then things of that nature. But I think things are still really going to start to wrap up around the new year. That's where I really think that they're going to sit down, get it done, and you know maybe around All Star break. I think that you know even that area we'll we'll start to hear a lot more about Elias Pettersson. You know, either signing a really long-term contract with the Canucks or signing, you know, one of those shorter-term deals. But I think that, you know, the conversations have been positive. I think these things obviously do take time. But um, I think that, you know, both parties are going to kind of let the holidays get through here, uh, let them get the American Thanksgiving and all of that, and then kind of really wrap up in the new year. So in terms of that, you know, being the new year and, you know, that may be more likely, that maybe fits more in line with everything, you know, we kind of assume that maybe that's the spot where he does end up signing an extension. The thing that I wonder about is when we keep talking about, you know, Pedersen deciding, Pedersen deciding, and as far as where the Canucks find themselves, the Canucks are, and this is what Elliot mentioned too, like I think they're pretty much at the point where not to say they're going to give him a blank check and whatever you want will give it to you, but Vancouver is, I think, very willing and eager to get this done, and they know it's going to cost a lot. Yeah, and I think for Elias Pettersson, I mean, he's he's right now, he's, he's the king, right? I mean, he's got the ball in his court. He really has all control of the situation. It's just a matter of what he wants. And to be completely honest, I don't think anyone other then Elias Pettersson truly knows what he wants. It, they, I, don't, I don't even think his agent does, to be completely honest. I think that, you know, he's holding this one really close to his vest. Um, many of his friends or, or people around the league, no one really knows what's going on. So this one, he's obviously keeping tight as to what he wants to do and a decision that he's going to make. But, Sat, to your point, I mean, are, are the Canucks, are they willing to open up a, a blank checkbook and see? Yeah, I mean, the number is probably going to start with an 11 at least. 
right? Whether how, how high up that goes it remains to be seen. And then it's just a matter of if it's going to be, you know, three, four or eight or an eight year deal for, um, for Elias Pedersen. Be funny if like Patrick Alvin went into the conversation was like, you know, you have fewer points than JT Miller right now. I think you should sign a matching contract. Yeah, I don't think that conversation would go over very well. You don't think so? No. I think, I think you'd get the Matthew Kachuk response. Yeah, <laughs> you'd get the internal cap. Uh, if you got the internal cap question from uh, Patrick Alvin, it probably wouldn't work out so well for for Elias Patterson. But you know, he's so close to to unrestricted free agency and being as young as he is. You know, more and more players around the league. We've seen it with Matthews, and I, and Matthews kind of set out the blueprint for everybody, right? Like when you are that status of a player, you can call your shot, and there is not much leverage that the team has, and all he can really do is hope that as, as long as we do things right, this player is going to want to stay with us. And I think that yeah. the Canucks have sort of held up their end of the bargain on that front. Well, I think that that's I, I honestly reach. I think that's the biggest thing. Yeah. I think is if they take care of their business on their end of, on their end of uh, things with Vancouver Canucks as an organization, you know, what player really wouldn't want to be here and 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 commit yeah. to being here? And I understand you know the media and, and things of that nature, but internally in the organization, the structure, the the you know getting a a practice facility, not having to drive all over the city, um, you know, being able to lure free agents, you know. How well is your cap going? How high is your cap going to be? What kind of problems are we going to be in in the next three, four years? Am I willing to stay here? Are we going to be able to compete? What are we going to do to be able to compete? Um, are we just trying to get in for one round, or are we trying to make a run? I think all of these questions are something that Elias Pettersson is definitely. I mean, in any free agent or any player that's willing to sign a long-term contract should be taking into consideration. But definitely something that you know, obviously he's he's thinking about a lot. It's not just you know the money and the term. He's going to get that no matter what. I think it's um, it's organizational stability. I think that that's a very, very important thing to him. And I think that there needs to be a plan, whether it's a four-year plan or an eight-year plan. And that's something that is, uh, is going to be pretty big for Elias Patterson. Um, and in in terms of what you just mentioned, what, what it really makes me think about is kind of what Canucks Nation feels right now. They're all super encouraged by what they've seen. They all think that, okay, you know, this might be for real. But let's see what happens by Christmas. Let's see what we look like at New yeah. at, at New Year's. And I think once you get to the New Year, and, and this team is let's say firmly entrenched in a playoff spot, and there's going to be real assurance that they are for real. I mean, I think as much as everybody's optimistic, we see the trepidation, and there are fans that always believe and and they are convinced and, and they think this team has figured it out. But there are many too that are kind of waiting to see. Okay, what are they actually going to look like at the midway point? Because that's going to give us a real indication of what they are. Yeah. Midway point, right around the all-star break, right around the trade deadline. That's what we've talked about on this show plenty of times is, you know, there, there's a few, you know, um, for me at least, there's, there's a few points in the season where I look at teams and you kind of, you know, weed out who we think are good or not good. And if you're firmly in, you're probably in like, we're a couple of days away and the Canucks are firmly in right around American Thanksgiving, right? So if you completely fall off the map here in December and January, that definitely, I mean, definitely a possibility. We've seen teams do that or, what type of team are you going to be here now, you know, as we get through Christmas and into January before the All-Star game, which is another point, and then obviously where you are at the trade deadline. Because the trade deadline is going to indicate, you know, what, what, the, what a type of plan I think this organization is going to have. You know, if you're firmly in the playoffs, you're sitting at the top of the division or near the top of the division, you know you're in, do you think that you can compete with the Vegases, with the Colorados, with the Dallases of the West? Or are you going to go and try and make a move to, to be able to, to, to do that? Or... Let's see what we have. Let's get into the playoffs here 
and this team's gotten us this far um, and kind of let's see what we have. So there's definitely decisions that need to be made um, or will that or will need to be made. But as for right now, when you look at this team, I mean, they're putting themselves in a pretty good position to be to, to you know, checking off all those boxes right when we get around to the halfway point of the season. I, I guess the sort of what you're figuring out right now, if you're the front office is how much are we willing to spend to upgrade this team? Like asset wise. Right. And you might have to spend not only assets to acquire a player, but you might have to spend an asset to, to get rid of a player in order to open up some cap space as we've talked about with the, the Garlands and, and those types of players. But to me, that's that's the conversation now because you know we're two days away from American Thanksgiving. The Canucks at uh, Money Puck are like a ninety percent chance to make the playoffs at this point. So, I mean, it, it just feels like the the conversation is pretty much already like how do we set ourselves up to get to the playoffs and maybe have a little bit of success once we get there. Well, I think that's the biggest thing, right? You look at it, you look at this team. I mean, we covered this team a lot. And, you know, a lot of people that listen to this show are, you know, diehard fans that watch this team a lot. This team is good enough to make it to the playoffs, right? They're, they're probably good enough to get in. They're playing the way that they're playing right now. Goaltending's great. You know, Quinn Hughes is playing out of his mind. So is Elias Pedersen, JT Miller. They're getting contributions. You know, some other guys obviously can play a little bit better, but they're probably good enough to make the playoffs. Are they good enough to get to, to win a round or two? or three, or go through the grind mm-hmm. that is the NHL postseason. How well built are you? How much depth do you have in your organization that if someone gets hurt, you're willing to call someone up and be like, okay, we're going to be okay at this position? I think that that's one of the things that Patrick Alvey and Jim Rutherford and you know, their staffs are looking into right now and saying that, okay, you know, if we're going to go get a guy, let's get a guy that's actually going to help us. You know, we're not just going to get a depth guy. And like you mentioned, assets and what they deem as assets. You know, some, some, some things – the Canucks may think are an asset, aren't really assets for other teams, mm-hmm. right? If you're going to want to get a good player, get someone that's going to help improve this team, you're going to probably have to give away a good player or, or at least sweeten the deal with, with a draft pick in, in return. So I think that that's the logic that they're going by right now is not only we're good enough to make the playoffs. I think it's no secret there, but how good enough are we to stay in the dance? And I think that that's a big thing. And you're right. And I think in terms of being the type of team that can take that next step, it's not just about adding bottom six guys, third liners, or, you know, third pair D-men. It's about adding guys who move the needle, actually. And those things are hard to do. And and I think one of the reasons why we keep hearing about Chris Tanev is clearly, as we heard uh, on the 32 Thoughts podcast, um, if he could change, maybe he doesn't sign and Calgary and he's still probably very open to coming to Vancouver. I mean his own words and and how he, you know, answered these questions and everything about, you know, how it all went down. So I can see the appeal. The question is if you're spending assets and and maybe you you're willing to move a Hoaglander for instance, but if Calgary says Hey, we want a draft pick as well. We want this and this. I don't know if that's the type of player they're going to spend their big assets on because if you're no. you might have one or two shots adding those two big players, and you can't spend it on a 33-year-old. No. And to be completely honest, you're probably going to get the 33-year-old on the cheap if you want to come free agency. Yeah. Right? So, well, like, unless you really think he's going to make that much of an impact and be what you mentioned, you know, someone that moves the needle and, 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 and is a guy that they desperately need, are you willing to give that up to maybe win a round? Like, oh, that's one of those things, right? Or you, would you try and go get someone that's a little bit younger on the back end and then, you know, use your ass and say, okay, this guy's not going to help us only this season, but maybe for a few more, 
right? Chris Tanner's probably got two, maybe three left, and he's on the he's in the tail end of his career. A little twilight, he's a little bit slower. I watched him the other night um, in in Seattle, but look, he, he's still Chris Tanner. He's a stay at home, steady defensively. He does all the right things and get the puck out of the zone, and he compliments Quinn Hughes. But there's a lot of other things and a lot of other players and a lot of other you know. Uh, conversations that the Canucks are having of ways to improve their team that's not just based around a guy like Chris Tanev. Yeah, it feels like uh, the the Tanev conversation. Nice yeah, <laughs> well, it's yeah. a nice story. It just it, it feels like the Canucks would always be on the outside of the Tanev conversation as a trade partner yeah. than other teams. Favorite in free agency, uh, maybe a dark horse via trade. Yeah, yeah, <sighs> and look, I I don't think that. Calgary really has much of an interest in trading with yeah. vision. Yeah. Uh, stranger things have happened. And then I know that people are going to be like, what really? Why? It's just, it's just the way that some of these owners work um, to be completely honest. But uh, again, like I said, stranger things have happened. So we'll, we'll definitely see what happens on the Tanev front there. But um, I do think that there are some other names that, 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 that the Canucks are definitely interested in. Well, Calgary's uh, almost back to 500. So maybe they changed their mind on some things. <laughs> yeah. They're not playing bad. Like they're not playing really bad. They're, they're kind of getting, they're kind of figuring it out. Sort of really not. I don't know. Well, I, I expected the Oilers to dig themselves out of it before yeah. the flames, but I was wrong on that one. At least the flames have a yeah. good defense in theory, have good, good goaltending, yeah. right? They just really underachieve. And, and listen, I don't, I don't think their chances are good to be a good team, but well, what, right now the team sitting in the wild card spot is 500? And the bar is 500 right now yeah. to be a wild card team. So when that's the bar, you're not that far off, even even though you've had a tough start. But if if the, if the Flames are not willing to trade if the Flames are not willing to trade Tanev to Vancouver anyways, and you're looking at a team that's probably best off adding to their cap commitments isn't like the best case scenario that they hold on to them maybe keep extending a couple of guys and be a mediocre team <laughs> and then chris tanov becomes a free agent and you don't trade for him you just sign him because there is a chance as much as hey you know tanov um, would like to come to vancouver what's to say though if he gets traded to toronto for instance and he loves toronto that he ends up staying there like as much as he would want to come to vancouver i'm, I'm sure he'd, he'd be open to it it's not like he can't be convinced by somewhere else if he gets traded yeah and you know what's funny? It's, it's, it goes back to, you know, guys wanting to play up here. I think Chris Tanev might be one of the only people that, like, or are players around right now that are that have, like, a no-movement clause. It's like, okay, I'll, I'll go play in Canada. Like, like I'll, I'll continue that, you know? Yeah. It's, it's funny. It's weird. It's, it's crazy to say, but, I mean, Zadorov maybe. Um, we've heard his name, obviously, linked with, with a couple other teams. But um, another thing is just getting players to play here. And that's obviously going back to the conversation we just had about Elias Pedersen. It's who can you get to come and play here? Because you know how many, how hard it is to get players, especially you know key free agents and 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 guys to want to play in in Canada. Well, uh, Zadorov's a Milstein client, so uh, you know he'll he'll figure out a way to convince uh, Zadorov to come to to Vancouver if he really wants to, um, and just add to the stable of Milstein clients here uh, here here in Vancouver. But uh, it, uh, it, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, like, I mean, poor Patrick Alvin has to deal with Milstein and Walsh. <laughs> Good luck. Right? Yeah, not not maybe the... I, mean, I'm, I say it jokingly. I, yes. I like them both, but it, those, those conversations must be fun. Uh, definitely. Definitely uh, interesting conversations. It, it feels like John Klingberg is going to be headed to uh, to Robida Island pretty soon, as Ooh. they like to call it. So maybe the Leafs uh, will have some cap space opened up to... Uh, to uh, add a defenseman from the Calgary Flames. Uh, you know, we, we started talking about Elias Pettersson. I, I kind of wonder, like, do you feel 
a William Nylander contract could be a, a comp for Pedersen if he does end up getting like 11-ish million dollars from the Maple Leafs? Uh, I don't know. I mean, well, he's 27. Yeah. Right? A little bit older, not a centerman. This is it. Yeah, a little bit older, not a centerman. I mean, it's, it all depends. Like, when you look at the Leafs and the way that their contracts are structured, they're paying a lot of money to a lot of guys. Yeah. Right? So are you going to pay a lot more money to William Nylander? I mean, if I'm the Toronto Maple Leafs, I'm keeping William Nylander at all costs. He's been their best player in the postseason the last two seasons. Um, he's a super easy guy to deal with. Uh, he just wants to play hockey. He really has the, I don't give a, you know what attitude. Yeah. And he's absolutely torching the league right now and is playing at an elite level. Um, they paid a guy who obviously has had some pretty good seasons to play at that elite level, but hasn't done anything in the playoffs. And that's Mitch Marner. Yeah. I, if I'm choosing between the two, I'm keeping William Melander. And for a contract comp, I don't know. I think Centerman probably are going to get paid a little bit more. Uh, Elias Pedersen's point per game probably on average is a little bit higher, I think, than William than, than William Melander's. But um, I think just by age alone, the AAV probably will be more than Melander's. Yeah, and uh, well, Pedersen being a hundred point center already certainly does yeah, help exactly. him in the conversation a little bit. Uh, so Thursday, Seahawks and 49ers, big Thursday nighter, uh, American Thanksgiving. Seahawks kind of need a win now after uh, after blowing it against the LA Rams on Sunday. How you feeling? Well, I told you we were going to lose against Rams. <laughs> Did I not? Sean McVay just has Pete Carroll's really? number. He does. It's just wild. But the Seahawks play the 49ers well. I mean, look, no Kenneth Walker is going to hurt the Seahawks. And then Geno Smith's elbow or whatever issue there is there is going to hurt a little bit as well. But, um, yeah, those games are always fun. Uh, I'm really looking forward to it. And then, I mean, obviously it's a great weekend if you're there. you got the Hawks and... Hawks and 49ers on Thursday and the Canucks and Kraken on Friday night. Yeah. Oh, I think that's that Hawks 49ers game. That's going to decide the division, isn't it? Pretty like, much. You can't, well, they got yeah. two uh, two against each other over the next three weeks. If you lose this one, though, then Tough. you're two back. And if you win the next one, you need a lot of luck to go. You can't. You, you almost have to be perfect if you lose the, one of yeah. the games. Like if, Especially I mean, with Seahawks them losing last the, night. Seahawks still have to play the Cowboys, too. Well, yeah, yeah. exactly. So that's going to... It won't decide the division, but it's their only chance at still staying in the divisional race. One. Yeah, I just, like, it's either go in, win, and be like, okay, whatever, but or get, like, slapped in the face and be like, okay, I have no false hope. If we make the playoffs, it's totally fine, but if not, I'm okay with that. Yeah. Uh, as, long as, uh, as long as Drew Locke isn't playing, uh, Seahawks might have a chance. That's, that's, that's what I know. Uh, Irf, you're the best. Thanks for this. Uh, all right, gentlemen, be well. There he is, Irf on Gafar, Canucks insider, joining us here on, uh, on Canucks Central. Seahawks are losing five in a row. No, they're not. Stop that. Uh, it could happen. Classic Seahawks. Play down to one opponent and then play up against uh, a, a stronger opponent. Yeah, well, you shouldn't have beat the Browns anyway. Should be 500 right now. Should be 5-5 <laughs> five and five on the season, not 6-4. and four. This guy. Very <laughs> upset. Just be happy uh, DTR got you a win on Sunday, all right? Listen, uh, the Browns are on to their backup quarterback. They backup have the top running, back. running back is out, and uh, they're still in the divisional race, 7-3 and three on the season. Yeah. And, uh, well, with the, the Joe Burrow injury, yeah, anything's possible. The Steelers are firing coaches in season for the first time since the 40s. <laughs> <laughs> Things are wild.
Uh, coming up, we're going to have uh, Shana Goldman on. We'll dive more in on the uh, Kale McCarr versus Quinn Hughes conversation with Shana. Her take on how the Canucks have started this season and just how good they've been to this point. That's all coming up, Canucks Central. Catch up on what happened in Vancouver sports with Halford and Bruff in the morning. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Back in on Canuck Central, it's Dan Richo, Satyar Shaw. The uh, NHL is dark tonight. Zero games across the National Hockey League. Canucks get back at it tomorrow. They'll be in Colorado, Friday in Seattle, and Saturday they'll have another matchup with the league where San Jose Sharks. Should be a great one. Sharks are a real tough watch right now, though. <laughs> uh, they're rough. Although I will say, I mean, they, they looked uh, far more watchable last night really? than they did that in that ten-one game. I don't know. Oh come on, they were better than that ten-one. I game. almost prefer the like the chaos of of the the Sharks that lost ten-one. Okay, I mean the game was boring at times, but I think that's a testament to San Jose. Like they they did a pretty good job. They looked keep like, on the outside for most of the part. They, they looked like Burnley at Turf Moor with <laughs> Sean Dyche coaching them. Is what they, they looked like. And you know what? Give them credit. They battled. And I will say, I mean, up until the third period, the Canucks had a hard time really creating good quality scoring chances. They took over in the third. Yeah. But to give San Jose credit, they kept everything to the outside it felt like one of those games like the i don't know 2016 2017 canucks yeah. where just like they'd fight hard for two periods and then like the team they're going up against just like turns it up and it's like all right we're gonna like, win now <laughs> okay now we're just gonna win that's <laughs> that was that was the canucks last night they were just like okay they made the coach happy by not making too many mistakes <laughs> and playing to their s- staples, but they yes. didn't need to like go too hard. And they're like, you know what? We need to take take over this game. They score a couple in the second and in the third. They just dominated. Uh, that's uh, the way it went last night. So, yes, San Jose coming up again on Saturday as the Canucks go out on a three-game roadie. This hour of Canucks Central brought to you by Brevo. Brevo provides convenient cloud-based access control systems from your mobile device for any industry. Go to lp.brevo.com slash Canada for a smart demonstration let's bring in our next guest from the athletic it is shana golden goldman thanks for this shana uh the the canucks right now just everything's going right for them isn't it yeah right they, it seems like they have a mix of good play a lot of luck and you're seeing like the superstars just thrive so definitely an encouraging start it feels totally different from the last couple years yeah and it, it just uh the way the star players are going um you know i don't know if quinn hughes is going to score 140 points this year or whatever he's on pace for but uh the, the star players is is what sets this team apart and i think the way that the front office has kind of just risen the floor of everything around them is what's allowed them to have a lot more success they maybe won't carry this points percentage for the rest of the season but it doesn't seem like it's going to fall off a cliff to me. I mean, I think that there are things that are going to drop off, right? Like right now we're seeing the finishing talent click at such a high rate. We're seeing the goaltending be so perfect. They have a plus 32 goal differential in all situations, which isn't super sustainable when everything below the surface doesn't fully support that. But I think that there's a way to take the good start, the lucky and the good together and turn that into a great 
season and it just you know continuing to build on what's working and to keep improving while you're having that lucky streak right that's the difference mm-hmm. not being stagnant not being complacent but finding ways to look at what's working and maybe what isn't working and what you could do better to just extend this I think when we watch this Canucks team, I don't think they are, to your point, that high-flying, high-scoring team to the degree we saw the first 16, 17 games. I see them more as maybe being a team that can win 3-1 games, 3-2 games perhaps, maybe even some 2-1 games mixed in because of their great goaltending and if they can still hone in and get better defensively. But one of the things that can sustain them offensively as the, as the year goes on is that lethal power play, which ranks amongst the best in the National Hockey League. How, how big of a dif- difference maker can it be when you have a truly elite power, power play? Yeah, if you have a power play that clicks, it, it really does set you up for success. It can't be everything. You can't have it that you're over-relying on power play scoring, but maybe you have a night that you're not clicking a 5-on-5. Five five. If you know that when you go on the advantage, it's not something that, that's going to take all the momentum away from you, you're in good shape. You look at a team like the St. Louis Blues, and they had a couple dominant wins, which seemed really uncharacteristic last week. They didn't have power plays in them. Their power play is so bad that when they went on the advantage, if they weren't scoring, it took the momentum away from them. So to have that going, it's definitely a good thing. And to have that going right now as we see, you know, we talked about the lucky streak earlier. Now the five-on-five play is like trending in the right direction as well. Like to have that all going at once it is such a good thing for the Canucks, and it's it's a really good foundation for sustainable success. I know you wrote about uh, some of the elite and not-so-elite power plays around the league recently, and the Canucks have been clicking at a, an incredibly high rate. And what we've seen Rick Tockett and his coaching staff implement is just uh, a freedom of movement. You know, Elias Pettersson isn't static on the right half wall, just waiting for a one-timer the entire time he's out there on the power play. You're seeing guys switching and moving and creating a lot of chaos and, you know, the, the the opposition all of a sudden has to try and figure out, okay, which threat do we have to take away most? And it's caused a lot of confusion in that way. Is is that something we see a lot of power plays starting to evolve into now? Yeah, the Canucks power play definitely is one of the best. Like when I wrote about them, they were so close and it was like Tampa Bay edging them out ever so slightly in a couple categories, which is why they got the nod over Vancouver. But, you know, Vancouver's so good on the power play because they have so many different weapons and a power play is it can be it's most dangerous when you're a team that can be in formation right but you can't just stand still in formation it helps to have that but you need some sort of motion you need some sort of fluidity to it and it feels like they really have that and the key to having that can be having a lot of high skill players because first of all obviously you're outmanning the opposition but if four penalty killers don't know where to put their attention it's gonna you know, make it all the more tricky. And the fact that they can move the puck around so well, and this is a unit that, you know, for the most part has played together for a while. There is chemistry there. It works in their favor. And you're seeing, you know, you really can't cheat to just one player because mm-hmm. you don't know where it's going to come from. And that extends all over the ice. You know, you have one of the best point men in the league as the power play quarterback in Quinn Hughes, who can skate all around the ice too. And, you know, you look at how he's scoring. You know, you're looking at, you're looking at each component of that power play being a threat. It's a good problem to have, and that's why teams are leaning on four forward units, you know, and one defenseman because you have more skill out there in most cases, and that's why teams tend to rely on that top unit to play such a high chunk of the ice time. 
Well, and you mentioned Quinn Hughes and the fact that he's also scoring a lot of goals this season. His shot has improved, but his shot volume has increased, I mean, dramatically. He's already a third of the way or past a third of the way of the total point, his shots on goal he had last season. So it tells you really how much, how much more assertive he has been. And we look at, when we look at him adding that dimension to an already really impressive offensive repertoire, what does that kind of do to the overall upside for a team when a player like him seemingly takes another step? Yeah, right. It's like it, it's uh, a person who already was someone that gave you an advantage in his minutes, but to take it, you know, a step further for someone like Quinn Hughes to have it be a number one defenseman who can be the one taking the step further. It just has such an impact on both ends of the ice. And it obviously helps, I think, this year that he has probably his most capable partner yet. We've looked, you know, you go back through the years of who Quinn Hughes played with and no one's going to match his level. And that's okay. When you're the number one, you might be the best player on the team, but to have someone that can keep up with you better helps. But, you know, we knew him to be a good puck mover. We knew him to be a good passer, but now that you can rely on him to shoot the puck more, I think he has like seven shot attempts more per 60 this year in all situations. Mm -hmm. And the quality has a slight improvement too. To have that, it, it just has to, you have to think twice playing against him even more than you already did because you don't know what he's going to do. He has enough deception in his game. He has the ability to move around the ice really smooth. And now he's not just going to be passing. He might skate up and take the shot himself. It, it's just, you know, he has all of the skills, I think, that anybody would want in their first, first pair defenseman and their number one defenseman. Like, it, he's making such an interesting conversation for the Norris when we're not even, you know, a quarter into the season. We uh, we all had the worry at the start of the season about Hughes and Hronick playing their their minutes together and you know how it would look for the rest of the Canucks defense and look there's still been some some scary moments beyond those two guys and when they don't have the best night it seems like the Canucks in turn don't have the best night but the value of having them two together and play as one of the top pairings in the league I mean it's it's almost just too good to pass up for for Rick Tockett it seems. Yeah, and that's, that's always a tough conversation to have, right? It's figuring out how best to balance out your defense players. Do you want to, It's the same thing up front. Do you want to be a top-heavy team? Do you have enough talent that you can you know, hand out minutes everywhere else and, and trust them to go on the ice in any significant situation? And there might be games where the answer is no and they're going to have to shift things. So I think it'll be good, too, for the Canucks to experiment a little bit with different pairs just so they know they have that up their sleeve. But that's you know, a later problem. That's a way to prepare for the playoffs. For now, to know that they have a sturdy top pair, I think is what sets the season apart from seasons past. Like, I think that reliability is something, you know, that they can depend on to a point. And, you know, I think that pair is, you know, outpacing expectations so far. But I think, you know, they've been really good in their minutes. And the more that they play together, the better it's going to be. And it, the better it's going to be for management to understand what this team might need. I think that's why it's so good that they didn't go splashy. We knew they needed help on the blue line, right? Like everybody knew. And the ceasing injury is a blow that they have to figure out right now. But, you know, to, to be able to look at that and say, if this is going to be our top pair, how does the rest of the blue line shake out? They have so much time to assess that. And it's not a panic move at the deadline or anything like that that's, you know, going to be necessary. So uh, tomorrow night we get the uh, Hughes versus McCarr storyline as the Canucks visit the Colorado Avalanche. And for as much as we've talked about Hughes this year, McCarr is right there neck and neck with him on uh, points per game so far this season. It's uh, I know we wouldn't have thought of it this way coming into the year. You know, Kel McCarr in a tier of his own as far as defensemen are around the league right now. But is there a chance Quinn Hughes, if he keeps this up, kind of gets himself into that conversation as the year goes on? 
Yeah, absolutely. Like it does feel like we can have a really good Norris conversation with Hughes and McCarr at the end of the year. And I think we can see if anyone kind of pushes him because, you know, going into the year, we did player tiers and we had um, Cam McCarr alone to himself. And then you have the McAvoys and the Foxes, but Quinn Hughes, I think we all wanted to see more of a jump from, and he's, he's giving that right now. Now it's just a matter of sustaining it, but you have so many top end defensemen thriving right now. You have McCarr who you know, is, I, I think, performing even better than he did last year, which is such a high level as it was. I mean, I think he could have won the Norris last year if it wasn't for him missing. I think it was about 20 games. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, the trophy could have been his, and it would have been more of a conversation between him and Eric Carlson. But you have McCarr thriving. You have Hughes thriving. You have Eric Carlson thriving, and not in as flashy of a way as last year, mm-hmm. in a more all-around way. Uh, Charlie McAvoy is crushing it in Boston. I'm sure we'll see Adam Fox pick it up when he's, healthy and back in the lineup as well. You know, it's a good time for these puck-moving defensemen, these active, progressive, you know, proactive defensemen. It's a different style of play. And even someone like McAvoy, who brings more of that shutdown style, has a totally different shutdown style than we might have talked about 20 years ago. So it's going to be really interesting, you know, to see how, especially I think the young defensemen that came Mm -hmm. up together, shake out these former NCAA defensemen. Like, I think all of that makes for such an interesting conversation. Like maybe we've been underrating college defensemen for so long. Mm -hmm. If this, this is what it can look like. When we look at Kale McCarr, and there's a reason why we viewed him as having, you know, being in in a tier of his own, what do you think is his greatest separating quality from the pack? And we know we, we talk about Quinn now perhaps getting there, but if we just, you know, take that, put that, to decide for the moment, what what do you think is his greatest separating quality? That's a good question because he has so many. Mm-hmm. I think it's his vision and his anticipation. I I think obviously he has the skating ability to cut up the ice, and I and obviously he has the puck moving skill. But the way he can anticipate a play, and sometimes it's all the way back from his own zone, and he knows how to turn defense into offense. It, it's such a smart, you know, style of play that to have that ability and then match it with all the flash and skill that he has, I mean, it just makes for a totally dominating player at this level. I just think he is so smart, and, and there's a level of poise to his game, and there's a level of risk that not everyone could pull off, and I think it all just comes down to the fact that he can kind of figure out where other defensemen are going and you know how players are viewing him and trying to answer him, and he knows how to you know act and react quickly to developing plays around him. We're going through the uh, ongoing process of trying to figure out what Elias Pettersson's next contract is going to look like with the Vancouver Canucks, and it's seeming more and more likely that maybe the blueprint of the Austin Matthews contract is is much, what be is it might be the compromise that uh, happens here, where Elias Pettersson looks more for a four or five year deal rather than going eight years, but his value as as a player in this league right now, is it among the top five-ish players in the league where we're looking at a guy 11 and a half, maybe $12 million on the average annual value? We could. I mean, the thing is, too, he's young. This isn't someone who's 29 looking for that money, so I think that matters a lot, too, but, you know, like, you have the top. You have the Austin Matthews of the world who are going for those big contracts. You have Nathan McKinnon. Even the Connor McDavid contract, like, it's not where it should be. So someone like Pedersen, I think, can push for more like Matthews did. Like Matthews set himself up that he's going to be the highest paid player next year and just exceeding McKinnon, and that contract Mm -hmm. expires a year after McDavid's next deal. 
that is the perfect position to be in because you're going to be able to say, I want more than that, especially if you have, you know, either more championship experience by that point or you're killing it more in the playoffs at that point. And who knows where Toronto or Edmonton will be, but it's a good conversation to have. So if you're going for that, you know, long-term deal, it's got to be up there because with the rising cap and the expectation that he's going to keep, you know, thriving like he is, especially as the team around him keeps getting better, that price is just going to go up. But I think you sell yourself short doing that, especially when you're a superstar player. In this league, we don't see superstars maximizing up. They go for team-friendly deals, and it might sound kind of crazy to say team-friendly deal. It's eight years and $11 million, but it, it honestly is when you think of the impact that someone like him has on a lineup. So, I mean, I can see that shorter-term contract and that higher-term value being the best outcome for him because it allows him to maximize his next contract even more as the cap rises. And, you know, he's earned every penny of it, I would say. Uh, I was reading uh, your article today, your latest, uh, and it is on the New York Islanders and the mess they find themselves in. And, and Poor whether, Bo Horvat. Yeah, I mean, Bo Horvat <laughs> went from one situation with, with a lot of bad uh, contracts. And, hey, the Canucks still have their challenges, but obviously it seems like they're taking a step forward, at least so far this year. And the Islanders, well, they seem to be kind of stuck in whatever it is they're in right now with so many long-term commitments. Uh, before we get to whether Lou Lamorello should be there or not, and you make a lot of great points on it, how bad a situation do the Islanders find themselves in right now long-term? Yeah, it, it's not good. It, it really isn't. It's not just the contracts themselves. And like, I don't, I wouldn't look at it and go, well, the Bo Horvat contract is the problem or the Barzell contract is the problem. It's all of those contracts together. It's the willingness to just hand everybody money very quickly, these huge deals. And, you know, obviously it's a joke when he says, well, they're too, you know, too expensive and too long. <laughs> they're probably not going to be Lamarillo's problems at the end of it but they're still going to be the Islanders. You compound that with the fact that so many players have no trade clauses. You can't hand them out like candy. Like in this league, a no trade clause, a modified no trade clause or a no movement clause needs to be something of value. It's some sort of trade off, right? If you give the player term, maybe they don't get the clauses or maybe that's the trade off for a certain cap situation. But it's not the case. You look at a player like Pierre Engvall, third liner, a, second, a third liner on a deeper team, a second liner on the Islanders, has a seven-year contract and has a modified no-trade clause and a full no-trade clause at different points of it. The same is true for Scott Mayfield at age 31 on a seven-year contract. Like, that's just mismanagement. It's so unnecessary. And you lock yourself into a roster, which you'd already be doing if you had a lot of long-term deals or a lot of expensive deals. You're limiting your flexibility. But now to essentially dig your heels in, and lock yourself into this roster when this roster, as it is, is not contender-worthy. And a lot of these players are either, you know, some of them are in their prime, some of them are just about to be out of it, or some of them already are out of it. This isn't all future bets. You know, it's not like the Devils where you have all these big long-term contracts at the beginning of a player's career. You know, you're just kind of making it that you have so few options and your situation is so convoluted, like, how do you get out of that? It's a similar situation to the Blues, where you look at that defense and you go, I think it's five of six defensemen have some sort of no movement, mm -hmm. no trade, or modified no trade clauses. You can't do that. You can't lock yourself into a mid-roster, and that's what they just did. So what's the way forward then for the New York Islanders? Is it um, move on from Lou Lamorello? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think that's step one. I think, yes you run the risk of creating a chaotic situation when you change general managers mid-season, right? It can be a lengthy process, the transition. But I think it's been very well documented. 
even before he ever joined the Islanders, you can go back to the you know late Devils years, and you can look at his time in Toronto, that this is not someone with the most innovative approach. This is someone who just locks up too many players to bad contracts and generally sticks to players that he's worked with before. You look at the David Clarkson contract in Toronto. That was someone he had a connection with in New Jersey. You look at some of the acquisitions he's made for the Islanders, um, players like Kyle Palmieri, those are players he worked with before and he just handed money. So, it's, you know, that's a bad trend. The fact that players are having these uncharacteristic career years and before they even get a chance to click with the Islanders, they're handed another contract. That's a mistake. And then to just gamble away picks is another mistake. You know, you'll hear things like, think of the, the Taves trade a couple years ago, right? One of the worst trades we've seen in years. And it was, oh, that was because of the cap. Meanwhile, look at the money that's been shelled out elsewhere. There just isn't enough creativity. There isn't enough innovation. And that is exactly what this team needs. This team needs someone who can spot those hidden gems, those Carter Hagees and those Michael Buntings that can bring a lot of skill with not, you know, a huge amount of salary because they don't have it to give out and they don't have the entry-level contracts because they've gotten rid of so many picks and they haven't prioritized development. So the few entry-level contracts they have are being wasted. Like, it's all bad that you have to figure out some way to move forward and it's not being complacent like they were this summer and it's not you know making these huge bets that just are never going to work out yeah it's a tough spot for the islanders they almost feel like the oilers of the east right now except they they don't have Leon Draisaitl and Connor McDavid so <laughs> that's uh that's that's one difference um Shayna we really appreciate the time and your insights as always thank you so much for today thanks for having me there is Shana Goldman here from The Athletic on Canuck Central. And uh, I knew this text was coming after uh, we started talking about the Canucks. A lot of luck. Please explain that comment. Um, I mean, we, you know. we can still look at the Canucks and say they've had a great start to the season. They have. Facts only. But the, the luck point around the Canucks is really for me, it's all on their shooting percentage essentially. And the offense that they've generated, because if you look at even a lot of the, you know, and we don't love the, the, especially the public data. And we try to point out that it's not the most accurate, so we shouldn't use it as gospel. Yeah. It's, it's, we have to use it more than as a useful guide as yes. opposed to something that gives you irrefutable evidence. It's uh it can be an indicator, but not something that we should take uh, as gospel as, as I've uh, said numerous times. The Canucks' defensive metrics are actually pretty good. You know, they started out not so great, and since then they've really gotten a lot better. And as we've talked about with Kevin Woodley and some of the proprietary data he has access to, you can look at some metrics of their top five in the league. That, you know, has wavered a little bit in these last couple of games, but they're still really strong defensively. And we saw that again last night against the San Jose Sharks. Where they are sort of overcoming or where they are getting lucky is is on the offensive end of the ice, where they've arguably scored more goals than what you would expect of a team that's generated the amount of chances they have. Yeah, five on five, that's the case. Yeah. And I mean, they're I think they're second or third in the entire National Hockey League at shooting percentage, five yeah. on five. And I think that's where some of that luck comes in. But like we were mentioning with Shayna, and it's something that you know uh, we brought up 
earlier in the season as well when they were, you know, being so explosive with their offense, they're probably going to be a team that's going to play more of these 3-1 games, 2-1 type games, 3-2 games, you know. I think that's going to be the norm far more than those big lopsided crooked scores they put up on teams. Now, because they have Elias Pettersson, Quinn Hughes, JT Miller at top of his game, Kuzmenko can get red hot, Brock Besser too, and they have these really enticing, talented players, they can go supernova. Yes, and when we saw, we've we've seen now that Queen Hughes can take another step, mm-hmm. and just like Shane outlined, when a player of that elite caliber does even more, it's just such an incredible impact. It's you know we, we use that term supernova as in you know the biggest exposure you can see, and I think that's kind of where what happens because you have these types of players that once they click together like we saw, and things go their way, they're going to be unstoppable in certain games, and we've seen that at times, but that's not how they're going to play game in and game out. We're going to see a lot more of the 3-1 Sharks type games. Yeah. The, the the tight game against the Dallas Stars that we've seen, the lower event hockey games. I think that's going to be more of their identity than being that high-powered scoring team. And they, they lead the entire National Hockey League in goals goals this year. Yeah. And Vegas is quite a few behind coming in that second. I think like seven or eight goals behind. So they, they're at the top. I don't know how high they'll stay as the season goes on, but I think in terms of how they play and their identity, it's probably going to be a lower scoring team as the season goes on. Uh, some of the the stuff that they've done is, you know, truly sustainable. Uh, other stuff is not as much, but that doesn't mean they're going to just uh, go in the tank and lose ten in a row. <laughs> it's, uh, no, and and it doesn't listen. Just because you have a hot shooting percentage doesn't mean you you necessarily win a lot of games. So the Canucks have the third best five on five shooting percentage yeah. in the league. The Ottawa Senators are second. Their record eight and seven on the season. Red Wings eight and six and three, and they lead the entire National Hockey League yeah. in shooting percentage. Vancouver has eight more points than Detroit, a couple more games played, and they have 11 more points than Ottawa. They have four more games played. But nonetheless, they have better records, they have better winning percentages than those teams do. So it doesn't just come down to shooting percentage. So I think that's what a lot of fans will point to and say, hey, they're not just based on a bunch of lucky goals. Like They they play decently defensively, and even by public data, they're kind of in the top half of the league with uh, expected goals against in many situations. And I think when you start getting into deeper data about what they give up, and we've spoken to Kevin Woodley about this, who will join us tomorrow as always on Canuck Central on Wednesdays that the clear analytics data shows that in terms of high danger scoring chances they're one of the best teams in the league and limiting those so there are a lot of things to be encouraged by the question just kind of comes down to what type of scoring team are they going to be and they may they just may not be as prolific as they've shown in these first 19 games and uh, when you have as many star players as the Canucks do uh, some things can truly go your way Elias Patterson, JT Miller, Quinn Hughes, Thatcher Demko. And that's pretty good to be building around that. And uh, some of the things they do, well, I mean, they're going to continue to do them. So you should feel pretty good about that. Vancouver Warriors lacrosse. Don't miss out on the best show in town for as low as $25 at tickets.vancouverwarriors.com. More Canuck Central coming on Sportsnet 650.